This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, it's Robbie here from Offscript, and today on the podcast, in our first ever feature, we looked at the beginning of a certain tournament that just got underway today at SW19, Wimbledon. The Offscript Podcast. Let's go back to the origins of the tournament. 135th edition of Wimbledon. And I'm going to ask you this question. I'm not sure anyone can get this right. This is an even harder question than the one I just asked. Any guesses as to which sport currently stages the oldest competition on the planet? Oh, that's a great question. As in a competition which which is still in existence today. Oh, that makes sense. That's a great question. Have so, a think. I'm not going to okay, let you ruminate on that, Soane. You got a thought on that? No clue. No clue. So it still happens to this day and it's the it's oldest in existence. Yes, indeed. Interesting. Yeah. Let's get into this. Wimbledon is older than the Ashes. It's older than the Six Nations, which started off life as the Home Nations. It's older than the Tour de France, but it's younger than the FA Cup. It's younger than the Open and the granddaddy of them all, the America's Cup. Oh, sailing. But that's not the answer to the question. That's I'm talking about prestigious international events, which are still going on today. We're going to get on to the oldest. niche oldest in just a few moments. But in terms of prestige, in terms of international events that would still carry that kind of profile today, the, internet, the America's Cup is the oldest, 1851. You've got to go back to. The Open Championship in golf began life in 1860. The FA Cup began in 1871. Six years later, Wimbledon. saw the launch of Wimbledon. And then five years after that, what a time to be alive when all these events were starting. The Ashes, 1882. Actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 1882, Six Nations, uh, 1883, which surprised me. I would have thought that would be a little younger than that. Then the Summer Olympics in 1896, the modern version, that is. The Tour de France, 1903. And then Le Le Mans 24-hour race became the first ever motorsport race in the world in 1923. So Wimbledon is the oldest of the tennis Grand Slams. The US Open came four years after it. The Australian Open came in 1905 and the French Open in 1908. But there are some even older sporting trophies that are still contested. So we count down the old Club Cup from the Royal Musselburgh Golf Club dates back to 1774. Imagine winning that. Imagine winning the old Club Cup. What a moment that would be in one's sporting career. Dates back to 1774. That's impressive. But it's not as as old as the Scorton Silver Arrow archery tournament. Okay, now the origins of that are somewhat unknown because the prize, along with the trophy, was a bag of silver coins, a pouch and a silver brooch um, awarded at the inaugural Antient Silver Arrow competition, which began in 1673. The Society of Archers in the village of Scorton in Yorkshire founded the event to maintain and test their target archery skills. Loving it. But all of these have to take a bow, a second place, to the Carlisle Bells, Chris. Right. They date back to sometime in the 16th century and are believed to be the oldest sports trophy in the world. The bells are given to the winner of the Carlisle Bell horse race in Carlisle, Cumbria, England. The first race took place in 1599 and the bells are the only remaining part of a larger prize from the 17th century. That's good. And to be fair, Jawad, he got in touch to say horse racing, so he was on the right line. Yes, he was, absolutely. Imagine being a jockey that still wins that. You've got four centuries of history. Oh, that's so good. Anyway, Chris, a little clip for you here. Back to Wimbledon. 
Okay, so legend has it that the inaugural championships of the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club were held in order to raise money to repair the club's pony roller, the one used to maintain the croquet lawns. So someone would have gone, you know what? Our pony roller is knackered. We need to hold an event. But, you know, you look at this and you look at Glastonbury together and we think about these glorified pasts of these illustrious comp- competitions or events. And really, they were just boats to raise money. Oh, exactly. exactly. Yeah. 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 It was it was it was just to yeah, it was to plug a gap. <laughs> it was to paper over a crack, wasn't it? So in 1877, the All England Club published an announcement in the weekly sporting magazine, The Field, that oh, read. And I'll try and do it in yes, the accent. Please do. The All England Croquet and Lawn Tennis Club, Wimbledon, proposed to hold a lawn <laughs> tennis meeting open to all amateurs on Monday, July the 9th and following days. Entry fee, one pound, one shilling. You know the problem with that accent? You don't have to do all that much to get there, Rob, do you? No. What a funny feeling. Your father just talks like that. Oh, hello, son. Hello, father. <laughs> the Off Script Podcast. Where are we off to, Rob? Well, I just told you that in 1877, the All England Club announced that they would be holding a tournament at the All England Croquet and Lawn Tennis Club. The entrance fee, £1, one shilling. And, of course, no prize money. This was not a professional event. They purchased a 25-guinea trophy and they drew up formal rules for tennis because tennis had been surging in popularity in the late 19th century, but it had originated um, from Jeux de Pomme, the French game for handball. That's it. And lawn tennis was still really taking shape. The rules were still a little bit fluid, it's fair to say. So they settled upon a rectangular court, 78 feet long, 27 feet wide. They adapted the real tennis method of scoring based on a clock face, 15, 30, 40. Don't ask me why it's not 45. Uh, yeah, it's me. Game. I often think the scoring system in tennis is the one that genuinely, if aliens were to come down, yeah. 15, 30, 40 and juice. Yes. What on earth <laughs> yeah. is that all about? Yeah, and juice is, is a derivative of two in French, yeah, isn't it? It is. So maybe you need two points. Maybe that's what it means. Ah. A juice to win the game. I'm not sure. That would be an educated guess, I guess. Um, but anyway, um, they established that the first to win six games wins a set. They allowed the server one fault. These decisions, largely the work of club member Dr. Henry Jones, who was also Indiana Jones's dad, but that's a completely separate <laughs> issue. They remain part of the modern rules. Interesting. That they established back in 1877. With that, the championships got underway at 3.30pm with play taking place at the then home of the club uh, beside the London and South Western Railway in Whirlpool Road, Wimbledon. Okay, 22 men registered for the tournament, but only 21 showed up (laughs) on July the 9th for its first day. I love the story behind this. The 11 survivors from day one were reduced to six and then to three... Not sure why they were three, but there were. Semi-finals were held on July the 12th, but then the tournament was suspended to leave the London sporting scene free for the Eton versus Harrow cricket match played on Friday and Saturday. Can you imagine nowadays if Wimbledon had clashed with Eton versus Harrow (laughs) cricket? We have to stop. Uh, Djokovic and Nadal cannot meet, unfortunately, on uh, the Saturday that as planned, because Eden are playing Harrow in the cricket. Djokovic and Nadal, you'll have to come back next Wednesday. It's the only time we can fit you in. Best of luck. Can you imagine that? That was it was just so sort of oh, okay. Well we can't possibly have it then. So the final was scheduled for July the sixteenth, okay, four days later. Presumably the finalists just kicking their heels for a while. 
But of course, in great Wimbledon tradition, the match was rained out. Of course it was. So eventually, seven days, a full week after the semi-finals, the final was held. 200 spectators paid a shilling each to see William Marshall, who was a Cambridge tennis blue, battle W. Spencer Gore, who was an old Harrovian racket player. A final that lasted 48 minutes saw Gore win with a strong volley in game. He crushed Marshall 6-1-6-2-6-4. He actually lost the following year uh, to um, a very innovative stroke that had never been used before. It was developed by Frank Haddo. The lob, Chris. Love it. The fact that the first ever Wimbledon did not feature a lob blows my mind because, you know, lobs are often, they're not even deliberate sometimes. You're just kind of desperately scrambling at the back of the court to to get it back in. Frank Haddo had watched his opponent gore and realised that the lob could be fashioned. That's it. Some great stories for you in these early years of Wimbledon. I do need to mention the first ever female champion, 1884. Maud Watson won the first championship. But let's focus in on the third edition of Wimbledon in 1879. And a man by the name of John Hartley, a North Yorkshireman. It gets a bit dark, this oh, this story. He was a peri- he was um, uh, a reverend. Mm. Okay, He was a man of the cloth. Right. His parish was in rural Burnston. And he was known as Reverend John Thornycroft Hartley. Now, he hadn't expected to reach the latter stages of Wimbledon. Which Imagine a reverend playing in 2022, which explains that he had to return home on the middle Saturday of the 1879 tournament to fulfil his religious duties the following day. He came back Monday afternoon for his semi-final, having caught a train from Thursk to King's Cross Station that morning before hot-footing it across London to the All England Club and winning, despite a pre-match preparation that involved... Scooting, scooting back to Yorkshire to carry out his duties. Anyway, he would go on to defeat the Irishman. How about this for a name? Veer Thomas St. Ledger Gould. Beautiful name. In the final. Now, he defended his title in 1880. He reached the final again in 1881, where he lost to William Renshaw. But several years after losing to John Hartley in the 1879 final, Veer Thomas St. Ledger Gould was found guilty, along with his wife, Marie Giridin, of killing a wealthy Danish what? widow by the name of Emma Leven in Monte Carlo. But so Wimbledon a was finalist was guilty of yes, murder. Yes, exactly. He was sentenced to penal servitude for life on Devil's Island Yikes. in French Guiana, where he died in 1909. Yikes. So what a contest that would have been. That was an absolute turn I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I know, I did tell you, I did Focusing warn you. on the reverend. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're going back well, to Veer Thomas and Lynch. Just the fact that a man of the cloth won Wimbledon twice yeah. is pretty crazy, That's isn't awesome. it? It That's is pretty that. crazy. And he beat a fellow who went Imagine to Imagine going to your murder. parish and going, how, how, was, how was your weekend? Um, it was very pleasant. I won Wimbledon. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> Here I am with you. Yeah, administering the sacrament. Anyway, um, we're going to go to the early 1900s. Wimbledon had graduated from All England to All World status. And in 1922, the All England Tennis Club and Croquet Club, as it was then known, moved to a large stadium on Church Road, where, of course, it would later make its home. Now, in 1921, Liverpool-born Max Woosnam 
No relation to Ian, I don't think. Nope. Won the Wimbledon men's doubles competition along with Randolph Lysett. Randolph Lysett. Is not- there a man that was ever more built to play the sport of tennis than Randolph Lysett? <laughs> Maybe not. But I want to focus in on Max Woosnam because, Chris, you're going to love this. He was also playing centre-half for Chelsea, later Manchester City, as well as earning a solitary cap for England in 1922. <laughs> so that. he won Wimbledon in doubles. Then he represented Chelsea. I mean, that's like... John you know, Terry. That's like John Terry making a deep run in the, into the second week at SW19. <laughs> and then capturing the Blues to yeah. success the following weekend. In 1947, Hans Rendel of Austria progressed to the fourth round of the men's singles event at Wimbledon. Nothing special about that until I tell you the, that Rendel had lost his left arm while on active service during the Second World War, fighting at the Battle of Stalingrad. As a result, Yikes. special dispensation was granted for him to touch the ball twice every time he served, tossing the ball into the air with his racket before hitting it. Huh. Wow. So he was able, the toss came from the racket, the ball yeah. would go up in the air. And he right. would serve. And he obviously had a one-handed backhand. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that goes without saying. Fair. Stating um, the bleeding obvious there. He competed at Wimbledon up until 1956. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but uh, in the 50s, many tennis stars turned professional. Wimbledon was struggling at the, at the time to, to maintain its amateur status. It wasn't until 1968 when Wimbledon finally went professional. And up until that point, think of it, 1877 to 1968, almost a century, nobody had earned a penny competing at Wimbledon. Now, the payment of backhanders to amateurs was rife throughout the sport, and the term shamateurism had actually frequently been used, which is a little expression that I think should be brought back, shamateurism. In fact, during the early years of the tournament, players ended up out of pocket, having had to pay an initial entrance fee for the honour of competing. I do want to talk to you about the first ever time Wimbledon offered prize money. This was back in 1968 when Wimbledon welcomed the pros and quickly regained its status as the world's top tennis tournament. 1968 edition, have a little guess as to what money was up for grabs, Chris? £10,000. Nah, that's a bit much. 5000 Not even that. The gentleman singles champion that year pocketed £2,000. The ladies champion earned £750. Mm. Compare that to 2022, when the winners of the singles competitions will both earn £2 million. Two million quid for a couple of weeks' work. It's not bad. It's not bad. Plus all the add-ons, sponsorship and all that kind of thing. Uh, Let's listen in on this special broadcast from the 1968 Championships. The two greatest champions Wimbledon has ever known, Billie Jean King and Rod Laver, set the seal on a memorable fortnight of tennis when they opened the dancing at the Grosvenor House Wimbledon Ball. The championships are over for another year, but memories of the world's first open tennis tournament where pro and amateur faced each other across the net on equal terms will linger for a long time. Moments like... I did notice the free plug for Grosvenor House there. Yeah, indeed, yes. The ball took place back in 1968. Yeah, Billie Jean King and Rod Laver, who are still around and very much they are. a big part of the tennis fabric as Absolutely. well. 1968, they were champions. Now, I want to talk to you about the first televised tantrum. <laughs> I searched long and hard for tantrums that predated John McEnroe's infamous rants of the 1980s, and I couldn't find any. So we're going to go with the super brat and this spectacular outburst on court one in the 1981 championships. Now, please do note how chair umpire Edward James maintains his posh British decorum throughout this exchange. Serious, man. You cannot be serious. That ball was on the line. 
chalk flew up. It was clearly it. How can you possibly call that out? How many are you going to miss? Now he's walking over. Everyone knows it's in, in this whole stadium. And you call it out? Explain that to me, will you? The linesman called a fault because the ball was on this side of the court. The and chalk it, came on, and it doesn't matter. No, no, the, the very fact that there is a spread of chalk, as you can see, Mr. McIntyre. Your second service. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Your second <laughs> service. Oh, I love no, it. no, 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 no. <laughs> How does he manage to sound like he's from 1956 when he's from 1981? Yeah, I know. Right? Yeah, well, he, kind of, he probably was, to be quite honest with you. Um, anyway, so that was the first televised tantrum. What about the first unseeded winner? The seeding system was introduced at Wimbledon in 1924. In the intervening 98 years, only two unseeded winners have won. This guy... And all of a sudden, you know, this eruption happened and uh, I was just jumping out of joy and I uh, looked around and everybody couldn't believe it. Becker's victory meant that a catalogue of records had been established. He was the youngest champion with 17 years and 227 days. He was the first German winner and the first unseeded player to win the Wimbledon crown. And to my knowledge, the only Wimbledon champion who's banged up in prison. Yes, you're right. Is he? He's in Wandsworth Prison. Wow. I did not, I didn't know he was already... For a dodging tax. And... Wow. Yes. No, 100%. You're quite correct. Uh, the other unseeded champion was this fella. At last, the waiting is over. We have a new Wimbledon champion. A man who four times now has attempted to scale the ultimate heights and at last he does it. Not a shame to say I shed a little tear that day. That was a very emotional one. I might add there's never been an unseeded winner of the ladies singles at Wimbledon. That of course was Goran Evenish. Yes, yes, sorry. That perhaps weren't aware of beating uh, Pat Rafter in a final that you're absolutely right Rob, I was emotional about as well. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 